I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Mark Pauley, Professor of Healthcare Management, Business Economics, and Public Policy at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Professor Pauley has co-authored a perspective article about the unanticipated consequences of postponing the implementation of the Affordable Care Act's employer mandate. Professor Pauley, as you understand it, why did the Obama administration decide to delay the implementation of the mandate? Well, the primary and ostensible reason is that the procedures that it would have to put in place and employers' ability to cope with them to certify compliance with the mandate were well behind schedule. Though the bulk of employers do provide health insurance, the rules require them to prove it, and the procedures for demonstrating that they were in compliance were being subject to delays. Above and beyond that paperwork issue, many employers had been saying, and some had even followed through proposals or with statements that in response to the mandate, they would reduce the number of work hours below the 30-hour limit to avoid being penalized for not providing health insurance for their workers. So I think as well, the possibility of some fairly dramatic employer responses, whether or not they actually materialized, led to this decision to postpone. Your main concern about the delay is that it will drive more lower-income workers to state health insurance exchanges, where they'll qualify for federal subsidies and thereby drive up the government's costs for expanding coverage. If the employer mandate is implemented a year later, what do you think will happen to those lower-income workers at that point? Will they switch to employer-sponsored insurance? Will it make economic sense for them to do something like that? Well, of course, it all depends on how long this delay is, that the more serious consequences would arise if employers believe the delay might even last longer than a year. But even so, even if it's only for one year, the sort of simplest case would be an employee of a firm with more than 50 workers who would, had the law been implemented, been either required either to be offered insurance by the firm or the firm would have to pay a fine. Now there's no fine, but it's likely that the employee might seek insurance in the exchange. If then a year later the employer decides to offer insurance, who knows, the employee may much prefer insurance in the exchange. And one of the most prominent factors we actually know about people's demand for health insurance is that there's enormous inertia. Once having settled on something, they're very reluctant to change. So the workers may not want to come back to the employer, even if the employer eventually complies by offering insurance at premiums that meet the income standards that the law requires. Something that may drive them, though, is one of the other possible effects you outline, that health insurance plans offered on the exchanges will have to be so frugal in reimbursing physicians and hospitals that patients will receive more limited care than they would on the employer plans and will therefore go back. That's true. Well, the question of how frugal or how aggressive they'll be in terms of cost containment, their mirror images, uh, remains to be seen. But some states do seem to be about to implement fairly aggressive measures to make sure that the exchanges get the lowest price they can so that they can offer a low price, low premium product. And that may make employees less happy, but we don't know. And the possibility is that the workers having come to the exchange may just want to stay there. So let's look at that opposite effect. Say that this allegedly temporary patch is embraced by workers, low-income workers, and it shifts the U.S. away from our heavily employer-based system toward one that's overseen more by government, more by state and federal government, subsidized by the federal government. It's not single-payer, but it's certainly a step in that direction. Do you think there's any chance of that? 
I think there is. It's kind of ironic here that it's not just people on the left who might value the idea that people should get their insurance through a government-organized entity that would be not displeased if workers moved away from getting insurance from their boss and getting it in the exchange. There are also people on the right who feel that having employers provide health insurance is inferior to having it provided by and chosen by individuals as individuals. So it might be ironic but possible that you'd have agreement of the two ends of the political spectrum that that this step away from what's sometimes called the American way of providing health insurance, getting it along with your job, that this erosion of employment-based coverage might be something that they would find attractive. On the other hand, many people worry, some or hope others, that this delay is a nail in the coffin of the ACA, that other provisions will be affected, the Republicans may eventually succeed in scrapping the whole law. What do you think about that possibility? Well, the ACA, in some ways, is a masterpiece of legislative craftsmanship, but it's all very delicately balanced. And to some extent, I don't know whether House of Cards or House of Build of Toothpicks is the example, but knock one prop out and the other parts at least are going to be stressed and may be subject to reconsideration. The most obvious thing is that if a larger numbers of people than expected decide to use the exchanges because the exchanges for at least workers with relatively low family incomes above 138% of the poverty line, but at least up to about 300% of the poverty line, if not a little bit higher, they're going to receive more generous subsidy to buy exchange coverage than the value of the tax break that they might have been getting for employment-based coverage. So they will probably want to continue with that, but higher tax costs for the ACA might be one of the things that would negatively affect its further implementation. There are some other things, which, including the individual mandate, that are also going to be under more stress as the employer mandate is postponed. Speaking of the individual mandate, the House of Representatives has now voted to delay the implementation of that aspect of the ACA as well. How devastating to the rest of the law would that be? It's something less than Armageddon, but it certainly doesn't help, particularly for people who have relatively high incomes. The subsidies to the exchanges top out around 400% of the poverty line, and people who might be buying individual insurance with family incomes at that level, they might be employees or they might be self-employed people. But in any case, what is a kind of backup when the employer mandate goes away is that, believe it or not, there are some people with relatively decent incomes who could get insurance through a large employer who choose not to do it, that those people still should be driven toward health insurance by the individual mandate. But the individual mandate does not have very high penalties in terms of financial costs, and the enforceability of those penalties is somewhat in question, especially for people who don't owe income tax and aren't entitled to an income tax refund. So the individual mandate is kind of the backup. There's a kind of belt and suspenders character here that even if you take the belt away in terms of the employer mandate, the individual mandate is supposed to mop things up. But for reasonably well-off, low-risk people, they will find that, and, and younger people, the premium that they'll be charged in the exchange without very much of a subsidy will not be a good value relative to the benefits they're going to get. And they may decide to take a chance and not use the individual exchanges. On the other hand, middle-income, high-risk people will find the exchanges to be a bargain. And so the adverse consequence is that the high-risk people may flood into the exchanges and the low-risk people may stay out. 
at the upper middle income level or at the middle income level. Now, for the people at the low income levels, they get a very substantial subsidy regardless of their risk level. So even if they're relatively low risk, because the fraction of the premium they're paying is so low, it's going to be a deal for them either way, and they'll presumably stay in the exchange. Even without the individual mandate, the subsidy will be enough to persuade them to stay in it. But I think there is a real chance of bailing out of the exchange by those low-risk and younger people who aren't getting substantial subsidies through the exchange. And a more general question, what can the administration do to improve the public and the political perception of the ACA at this point? That's a political question. I'm only a humble economist, but frankly, I think a little less cheerleading, a little more honest statement about challenges being faced and probably some ex-anti-prioritizing rather than throwing things at the legislation overboard at the last minute and on weekends. More transparency here about where the stress points are likely to be, what the strategies might be if those things don't work out, perhaps more phased-in timetable for various parts of the legislation, something different from having to do all these things at once would be my advice. Thank you, Professor Pauly.